from the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas. Just footsteps from the White House, the heart of the nation's capital. This is 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Here's your host, C.R. Wooters. Welcome to 14th and G, a podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Today we welcome J.P. Morgan Chase's Peter Shear. Peter serves as both chairman of the Mid-Atlantic region and the global head of corporate responsibility. And he has developed many of the firm's flagship programs, including its now you know, somewhat famous $150 million investment in Detroit's revitalization. Okay, let's rock and roll. Here's Peter Shear. Peter Shear, welcome to 14th and G. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with a little of your background. You know, where'd you grow up and how'd you come to the world of public policy? So I grew up in New York, born in the Bronx. Uh, grew up mostly out on Long Island in a town called Great Neck. Uh, loved politics as a kid and knew I wanted to come to college in Washington. Uh, I got accepted to one place and so decided that's where I'd go. <laughs> perfect. A perfect match. It made, made, made my decision quite easy. <laughs> yeah. So I literally came down here to Washington in 1979 uh, as an undergrad at American University and uh, kind of started my interest mostly in politics, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's hard to divorce politics from policy. So... As, as much as some of us hacks might like to actually do that, as much as you, as much as you like, there is so, there is a reason behind the politics. Hopefully, to drive, you know, improve people's lives, and and that's where policy comes in. So, I uh, spent a lot of time in the '80s working in political campaign, Democratic political campaigns, uh, mostly losing. Uh, got my law degree in between, and spent a few years practicing law, and then uh, about ten years in government uh, on Capitol Hill in the Clinton administration. And then about eight years uh, as a partner law firm here, and then joined J.P. Morgan Chase in the spring of 2008 as the financial system was beginning to collapse. It sounds like a good idea to go it, to a bank at that it, point in time. Exactly. <laughs> My wife likes to say that the banking system seemed fine before I got there. <laughs> All right, so you wear a bunch of hats at J.P. Morgan, but one kind of has an eye on D.C. and the other has a little bit of an eye on corporate responsibility and the foundation and other stuff. I'm going to probably ask you questions about both if that's cool. Sure. Let's start with the D.C. stuff. Your CEO, Jamie Dimon, obviously a familiar face in town. He's now running the Business Roundtable. Um, clearly, he thinks uh, engagement in D.C. and my guess is in you know uh, capitals around the world is important. You know, what's your footprint in D.C.? What's your philosophy on engaging, on engaging policymakers? And kind of just yeah. give us a little view into that. So the, there's two pieces to this. One is is engaging policymakers. The other, one of the hats I wear is from the business perspective in D.C., which we mm-hmm. can talk about as well. But, you know, interestingly, one of the reasons when I was approached about this position at the firm, which was initially running government relations, um, I didn't know very much about banking and did a lot of research on the firm and Jamie and one of the things that was very compelling is I read a speech he had given in the spring of 2007 uh, in which he said that companies have a responsibility to go to Washington to, to be engaged in government and policy beyond their narrow self-interests. And I hadn't, you don't hear a lot of CEOs talking like that. Sure. And, and it really is his philosophy that he thinks this is a fundamental responsibility of the company. So he... 
executives. We put a lot of time in less, you'd be surprised, much less about banking interest per se. Sure. Much more about, you know, economic trends. What are we seeing in markets? We spent a lot of time on, you know, what do we see as some of the lessons coming out of our work in cities. Yep. So he's down here this weekend for meetings at the IMF. He's, you know, in the last few months, he's met with prime ministers in India, France, Israel, yep. the UK. So he just, he sees it and we see it as a fundamental part of our responsibility to frankly support, you know, our mission in terms of really being one of the engines of, of economic growth in the country and around the world. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And to that point, um, you know, what is the top couple of priorities you guys see? Uh, you know, we'll keep it to Washington now and then right. we'll talk about, I do want to talk about your city <laughs> stuff, but, but you know, um, the Trump administration's doing stuff on trade, we're talking about right. taxes, we're talking about a couple other things. What's the stuff that, that really is top of mind? Yeah, so I think the I mean, in the broadest sense, we want to drive more economic growth. I mean, we think it'll be good for the country, and we think it'll be good for our company. If, if the country is growing at 3% instead of 2%, that's a, that's a win-win. It mm-hmm. means more jobs are being created, it means wages are being driven up. Uh, and and you have to believe that'll be good. <clears throat> excuse me for uh, for banks as well. So as you look at the agenda now, you know obviously tax reform is at the top of the agenda. You know not clear kind of what the timing. There's a lot of sausage being made now, as you know. Uh, we we believe that our tax code has gotten really out of joint with the global competitive landscape, and you see particularly in the corporate area. You know, the over the last five, ten years, most countries have reduced their corporate tax rate. Ours is is very high; it's some of the highest in the world, and it discourages investment right. in the United States and it encourages you know investors and companies to to look overseas to more competitive uh, tax countries. And so, we think that getting our tax system in line in a way that would encourage more investment here in the United States would be good for the country and good for job growth. So that's, you know, that's obviously a big focus right now. We'll see where that goes. We're also looking at even things like housing policy, not so much uh, GSE reform, which I know a lot of people talk about. But one of the challenges we see in mortgage markets around the country is that banks have fleed from FHA lending. And the people who are getting hurt mostly in that are lower income, lesser credit quality uh, mortgage seekers. And we don't think that's good for the country. So is that, let me pull on that for a second. So that means um, if you're qualified to have a whole bunch of money in the bank, you can put down a big 20% loan, you know, down, you're fine. You'll have 10 10 banks competing for for that mortgage. Right, but if you are trying to buy your first home or you're scraping together, you know, know, you're, you're working three jobs to try to scrape together what you can to get your foot in the door, it becomes harder. It becomes harder, and part of the reason it becomes harder is that there are there are government programs, I think good government programs, like mm-hmm. the guarantees to help ease people into that situation in which they can buy homes. The problem, and frankly, you know, I'm a Democrat, I think that I think the Obama administration went way overboard. You know, there was clearly a lot of things that went wrong in the financial crisis, including a lot of things that went wrong in the mortgage space. The result is now lenders are discouraged from writing mm-hmm. loans. And this is not just us. Banks yeah. have fleed from it. Penalties for getting something wrong have become so astronomically. The Urban Institute, which sure. is not exactly a bastion of you know <laughs> right-wing thinking, has said it's just too 
crazy. And so we think that if if there could be some modification, I think you're going to open up huge parts of the mortgage market, which will be mostly helpful to lower income right. uh, and middle income people who want mortgages. I'll, I'll transition a little bit here to your corporate responsibility duties. And I'm sure that that's kind of a, a bigger, broader topic. Um, uh, but really affects all this other stuff. You have made uh, a bunch, I and mean, you've really led the charge on making a bunch of investments in what I would call kind of down-on-your-luck cities, um, Detroit being a, the best example. Um, before we get to specifics on that, and I'm gonna, I'd like to hear a little bit more, how does this stuff come about, and does this relate to Jamie's idea of kind of being a part of something bigger than... Yeah, I think, look, none of this you could do without the kind of support and influence and leadership at the top of the house. Sure. And, and, you know, a lot of it for us, about five years ago, we undertook a pretty extensive review of how we were approaching, um, in particular, philanthropy, but more broadly, corporate responsibility. And, you know, we were spending a lot of money, probably $200 million a year, and it wasn't clear that we were having a lot of impact. Um, and so, Jamie, yes, this is back in two thousand early 2012 to really look at it and and really understand you know you're spending you think about it, you're spending 200 million dollars a year two billion over 10 years you should be able to do some something real with that and I think the problem for us and I think there's a lot of corporate I, I speak to a lot of other uh, companies about this a lot of corporate um, approaches they think of this as just chat let's just write checks to charity yeah right, right? and everybody's and pet little project everyone's yeah. pet projects and and there's nothing wrong with there yeah. there were the important charities sure. but you know you end up going a mile wide and an inch deep and you don't end up leveraging the core assets and so one of the things we realized is as we looked at the you know state of economic growth are there particular areas that we have some expertise and we have more than just writing a check? And mm-hmm. so we, one of the first big initiatives we focused on was the skills gap, that you've got you know, literally you know, in the United States 5 million uh, unfilled jobs at a time that you know, unemployment is high. And these are good middle-skill jobs. So we got much more focused in areas where we thought we had intellectual capital and other resources to bring to the table. And that was really the beginning. And and Detroit, you know, it would, it truly was, you know, we had been part of Detroit. We've been part of Detroit for 80 years. Sure. So we've watched the decline. It's a very long story how we got there. But one day in the fall of 2013, Jamie called and said, go see if there's something we could do to help. Mm-hmm. And I think had that, had he had he said that to me two years earlier, my strong supposition is the the answer would have been no. There's Why really, is that? Because I think that the there was very, there was no political leadership. Sure. The community was very divided. It's what you see in a lot of places right now. Yep. But we, when we got there, fall of 2013, you had the you had a new mayor just got elected, Mike Duggan. You had the business community, people like Dan Gilbert from Quicken, Roger Penske, others. The nonprofit community, the community groups, all aligned around a strategy, all aligned with what could be, what needed to be done to begin to bring back the city. In those cases, we can be really helpful. And so, what we did was we went in, and we we didn't go in with any preconceived notions. Sure. And the answer may well have been nothing we can do. But we, <laughs> but we went in. So, what can we do to help? Where are the areas that you're trying to focus on? So, you know, we just talked about the mortgage market. Sure. Real problems in terms of getting people loans to buy abandoned homes and rehab them. We know how to develop loan funds, okay? Sure. Skills. How do you get people in Detroit, 
the skills they need for the jobs that are being created. Small business. You know, all areas in which we have particular expertise and resources. And so, you know, we spent about six months really trying to figure it out. I had a team of about 40 or 50 people, and we were analyzing, you know, what's the need? What can we bring to the table? And do we think we have a reasonable chance of success? And sure. it over time, it became we were prepared to make this $100 million investment, which we announced in uh, spring of 2014. Yeah. So uh, on the Detroit stuff, so you've gotten a, a good amount of recognition for this. I, you know, I should congratulate you on your. Uh, I just read Fortune's list of. Uh, I'm surprised you got it because I thought we bought up all the yeah. copies of the magazine. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> companies that are changing the world. Yes. You guys are number one on number that one. List. Fortune calls your investment in Detroit a blueprint for rebuilding American cities. You know, what are, you talk about some of the kinds of investments that you're making uh, in Detroit. What are the outcomes at this point? Yeah. Are you seeing payoff? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it really is extraordinary. I mean, first of all, we thought it would take us five years to deploy $100 million. Uh, we ended up doing it in three, not because we were rushing the money out the door, but we, we, we saw new opportunities. Half the money we deployed has been in the form of uh, low-cost, longer-term loan funds. And that money's being paid back. Sure. And so, actually, our investments have earned about $10 million in returns, and we're redeploying that. So, in May, earlier this year, we announced that we expected that by the end of the five years, it wouldn't be $100 million, it'd be $150 million. And it wasn't that someone was sitting and said, hey, let's do another $50 million. It was we saw opportunities to continue to drive. So, you see more people working in Detroit than you've seen. The, the, the unemployment rate, which is still too high is coming down extensively. The downtown and midtown corridors are booming. You could not rent a an apartment in downtown midtown Detroit if you wanted one. There's just right. they're just overcapacity. And we're starting to see the neighborhoods mm-hmm. really starting to come back. And so the key for us was genuine collaboration mm-hmm. among the the public sector, the private sector, the nonprofit sector and really saying, come to the table and help us. There's no, no one is arguing about politics or partisanship or sure. Russia or whatever else is. <laughs> how, we got problems we need to fix. How yeah. do we come together? Yeah. Who can help us fix those problems? And really, it's been an extraordinary experience. And we're now realizing there are other places we can take it. Yeah. And so we announced in September, you know, and these are not, and what we realized, it doesn't have to be an entire city. I mean, Detroit. Mm-hmm. Was is an extreme example. We announced in September we were investing forty million on the south and west side of Chicago because again we saw people, institutions and individuals and and the right players coming together around the issues of crime and violence mm-hmm. in those parts of Chicago and how do you address it? Mm-hmm. And so you've got you know and again this is not you've got Arnie Duncan and you've got the Obama Foundation is now moving in. You've got other companies and nonprofits, University of Chicago. So we saw the kind of collaboration that we went in and said, okay, let's again, are there things that are there things unique that we can do to help drive it? We just made, as you know, a, a $10 million investment here in DC. I just we, want to know if that's going to help my commute, really. You know, that's all not I'm, initially. Okay. Not, that's next. We can get to that. Okay. Um, so what are you doing here in DC? So over in, you know, Ward 8, there's a there's a project called the 14th Street Bridge yep. Park, which is a mm-hmm. terrific project to really connect Anacostia mm-hmm. to, to, to the Capitol and the rest of the city. But this is really unique, and we haven't seen this. We know, looking at now, that there will be gentrification as a result of this. Mm-hmm. There'll be a lot of development, 
And so you're going to see, you know, lower middle income people pushed out. Mm -hmm. You're going to see small businesses pushed out. Mm -hmm. um, you're going to see jobs being created. And the question is, will the people in that community yep. be able to get those jobs? And so this was an opportunity we sort of come in and see if we could get, we can get ahead of the game. Mm -hmm. Could we, before the, before the, you know, the developers come in and the builders mm -hmm. come in, could we go in with the community uh, and help? One of the things we did, we created a land trust to begin to buy up some of the land to hold for affordable housing. Oh, that's good. Could we create funds so that small businesses who might be priced out of the market, we could give lower cost, longer term capital that they can afford to stay? Sure. Can we develop some training programs mm -hmm. so that when this, when this bridge park is being built, people in Anacostia can mm -hmm. be trained for those jobs? Correct. And so we're taking our experiences from Detroit, from Chicago, and saying, here is a you know, defined part of the DC community, you know, and, and this is, look, this is important. You, you, we're sitting here in the most powerful city, you know, yep. on the planet. Five of the 10 wealthiest counties in the United States are in and around this area. And we have some of the highest poverty rates less than a mile from the US Capitol. It's not acceptable. And we can't grow the economy of this city right. if we're gonna be leaving this many people behind. Right. And so we saw the community groups nonprofits, other foundations coming in saying, here's here's a project, here's a specific place we think we can make a difference. And we saw an opportunity that we could be additive to that. So we're, we're very excited about the possibilities. And, you know, to, uh, to us, we look at all these things. Can we learn something here that we can then apply someplace else? Sure, right. So a lot of what we've done in Detroit, we've taken other places. If we get this right in D.C. and get ahead of the gentrification, yeah. This could be a model that we can take, frankly, not just around the United States, but around the world. So it, it's an exciting project for us. Yeah, so I, I int it's interesting that you mentioned that because I suspect your investments in Detroit and other places uh, are, are all in all probably way more positive than negative, but there are people in those neighborhoods now who are trying to figure out their way in through the world and what do we do here? Right. I mean, the story I, I may have mentioned to you before, I have a friend whose uh, wife is starting a yoga studio in Detroit, in downtown where, and uh, she had a woman come into her and said kind of, where have you been? Right. And what was wrong with this place before? Right. Um, and I think that's real. <laughs> it is absolutely, listen, and you look at a lot of these places and there are deep-seated racial issues. Sure. And there are there, there's a real income divide. And this is why we have, look, JP Morgan can't show up and say, hey, you know, here we are from Wall Street, we're gonna tell you how to fix your city. Yeah. What we can do, as we didn't do other places, is understand are there things that they, when, when the community comes together, and the DC area, this DC project is a great example. The people leading this project did a thousand community meetings. Huh. A thousand. Wow. To bring the community around. Mm -hmm. So so the 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 design and effect of what the objectives were were not ours, were the communities. Right. And then you okay? just decided it was And so worth we said, okay, yeah. you know, put us on the team. Yeah. We want to help. Yeah. And and I think that's I think that's a positive thing. Look, all these things won't work, mm -hmm. but we're gonna try a bunch of things and 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 see what we can make happen. I guess I just wonder what's the, you know, uh, how do you balance the kind of capitalism versus, you know, 
charitable good right. here, right? I mean, look, I, you guys are in the business of making money, right? So how do you do that? I suspect one probably feeds the other and, and back and forth. Not a balance. No, we, we, it's, it's really interesting. And I think this is where you, we need to see a sea change in companies. We have never viewed it as a balance. Okay. Because, and now, part of this is we've refocused. What we believe is if, we're, if Detroit is growing, if, you know, if there's more housing, if more people are working, if businesses are being created, if business is expanding, that's a good thing for a bank. Now, sure. that may be a good thing for a lot of banks. Yeah. But, you know, we have to have confidence that, you know, so we now, you know, we've kind of become the hometown bank in Detroit, okay? Mm-hmm. And I think people want to associate with institutions, whether it's where they shop or where they eat or they put the money, that I think we're reflective. So we view these as really smart business decisions. We do not view this as charity. Interesting. And I listen, I mean, you, we, we, we talked a little bit about one of the hats I wear is as the chairman of this region. I mean, this the D.C. region, yep. uh, really the Mid-Atlantic, has become a very important economic region mm-hmm. for the company. I mean, you, you if you think about kind of the Richmond to Baltimore, which is kind of my jurisdiction in sure. a sense, you know, this is the third largest economy in the United States. Right. $650 billion GDP. We've got 55 Fortune 1000 companies headquartered here. We've got real business interests in this region. Yep. If there are things that we can do to help the region grow economically, right. that's a good business bet. Listen, we brought our, when we did announce the Detroit investment, a year later, we had our shareholder meeting in Detroit. We brought our shareholders, and, and right. we said to them, "We view this as part of the long-term value proposition of of being a shareholder in J.P. Morgan Chase. Huh. Don't worry about what's going to say the next quarter. Yeah, but you know what? If we can continue to grow, and if Detroit comes back, if D.C. grows, if Chicago grows, yep. economic growth at higher levels." That's a good business move. Sure. Yeah. No, it makes sense. And also, like, it seems like other companies are doing this. It's not just banks. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Maryland guy, so I see what Kevin Plank and Under Armour is doing in Baltimore. Absolutely. I mean, it. it, it and listen, in, even Dan Gilbert is sure. the one. And and this is the, I think this is the fundamental thing we have found. It was interesting for us is it's not just writing the check. It's can you take the kind of the the, the shoulder of your company. And so one of the things we've done in all these places, we, we realize a lot of these nonprofits who we're partnering with on the ground, whether Detroit, Chicago, you know, they don't have the capacity, they don't have the expertise. Sure. We got a lot of that. So we created the service core. Hmm. And I was a little dubious about how it would go over because we went to the business and said, we need to take people out of revenue generating roles sure, right. for three or four weeks at a time and send them into one of these cities to work with a nonprofit mm-hmm. to help them on, it could be HR issues, it could be finance sure. issues, strategy issues. And at first, we're like, people are like, huh? Because those nonprofits have a job. I mean, they, they're they focused a, on whatever yeah, the nonprofit but they need, is. but they need help, yep. right? Because they don't have the, they often don't have the capacity and they don't have the expertise that we can bring to bear. Sure. This has become one of the most popular programs in J.P. Morgan. Huh. And the, the senior business committee, committee basically now said, let's double this. So we now will have 200 people a year, and they're coming from all over the world. And these are high-performing. Sure. You know, these are not, oh, God, I don't know what to do with yeah. Joe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's send them to Detroit for three weeks. Yeah. These are high-performing right. vice presidents, executive directors. And we view it as part of talent development. Mm-hmm. Like, go, you know, we, so we send 12 people at a time to a city, usually to work with three or four nonprofits, and they do it as a team, and they're working 12 hours a day. Sure. And a lot of times these are people within the company who've never met each other. 
Oh, so we got people. We've got people coming from all all parts of the country, different businesses, different mm-hmm. countries, and it's been an enormous benefit. Because part of it, from my perspective, if we're going to invest, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions in a nonprofit, mm-hmm. I also want to send some people in to kick the tires a little bit. Yeah, right. Exactly. I want to know it's working, yeah. not because I'm trying to, you know, check up on people, but if it's not working, try I want to try else. something else. Yeah, exactly. Makes so sense. Yeah. we're really approaching it as we would a business decision. Do when they leave, what happens then? Do they do they, they remain they, in contact they, if they, they want oh, to? It or? has been an extraordinary thing. I mean, because mm-hmm. first of all, most of them has, have said it is. Has been the single most uh, impactful professional experience of their lives. Sure, and they create these little networks. So you mm-hmm. have twelve people who literally, you know, work, eat, <laughs> breathe yeah. together. You know, for three or four weeks at a time from different parts of the world, and they become a support system for each other. And yep. so they have little, they have group chats, and they yep. will get together on video conference, and they also then become mentors for the next. Oh, that's cool. And a lot of times they'll stay in touch with the nonprofit. So, and we've encouraged this. Look, you got a problem? Tell us. Don't wait till like something goes wrong. Right, exactly. And these are people you can call on for advice and and counsel. And since they've been there in the trenches with you, it's an easy kind of call to make. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, that's. that's, I mean, the mayor of Detroit will tell you that, that that part of our investment in Detroit has been more impactful than the financial investments. Huh. Giving the giving the those kind of resources sure. that a nonprofit would never have access to. Uh, you mentioned DC, you mentioned Chicago, any any but any other um, big investments so were So we're looking we're looking at other places. Um, <clears throat> we're taking a pretty close look at Houston right now, particularly following the the disaster. We've got 7,000 people who mm-hmm. work in Houston, you know, fourth largest city. And so we're starting to look at are there some we've started to actually a couple of interesting things we that we've taken out of Detroit. One of the things we did in one of the first problems they had in Detroit was how do they how do they kind of catalog and map all their blighted properties? Sure. And we helped them develop a technology mm-hmm. so people could walk around with their iPhone, mm-hmm. take a picture, feed it into a central database. So we're now we've taken that to three cities in Ohio. We're going to use that in Houston to map the neighborhoods and the specific properties that need help. Mm-hmm. So we're starting to look at Houston. And look, you know, we are we want to go where we think we can be helpful. What what the surprising thing is a lot of a lot of cities will come to us and say, "Hey, 100 million Detroit, you know, how about us?" Yeah. But the, but they often don't have not sort of done the work that they need to do to bring the community together. Correct. And so a lot of times you go into a city and everyone's moving in a different direction. Even the non nonprofit community, yep. you know. And so, and we can't impose that. We can we can give them advice. We can give them models. We can sure. tell them how it's done. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, the communities have to come together. And so, you know, we're constantly on the lookout for places that uh, that we think we can make a difference. You doing anything in Puerto Rico? Uh, you know, it's interesting. We we don't have any operations in Puerto Rico, but we have. A lot of our employees have family and friends, and so sure. we have uh, we've now done nearly a million dollars in donations to International Medical Corps, American Red Cross, some of the other local mm-hmm. to help with the recovery efforts in Puerto Rico. It's interesting to me. Uh, Puerto Rico seems to be like a, a a disaster situation on many levels, but also like a huge opportunity. Uh, you know, some of the tech companies and others have talked about, hey, if you're going to go build new roads and bridges, let's build them smart and yes. let's figure out how to. Is there a? Ch- I mean, you know, in some ways, I feel like. You know, you've got to get people food and water. Let's start with the basic, right? Exactly. But if you get back to rebuilding and you basically got to rebuild the whole island, yes. 
it feels like there's a huge absolutely. If you if you ask Mitch Landrieu, the mayor mm-hmm. of New Orleans, I mean they have completely rebuilt their school system. They could not have done it, you know. And you don't wish that this is how they got there. Right. They could right. not have done it had it not been for Katrina. Yeah. You know, you've got you've got heavy debt burdens sure. there. I mean, it's very similar to Detroit, which yeah. had to go through bankruptcy. Yeah. Um, and do you, ha- you know, this could be an opportunity in which the forces come together and say, look, let's build, rebuild it, you know, in a long-term sustainable way. Let's rebuild it, and I think this is in Houston also, in a more resilient way. Sure. We know, I mean, one of the tragedies in a lot of these places, and even I had a conversation with the mayor of Houston recently about this. Look, they knew some of the infrastructure challenges that they faced mm-hmm. that, you know, they didn't certainly didn't predict this level of... Yep weather activity, but we have to be thinking about all these cities. Some of what we're doing in Detroit, how do you create more resilient, you know, given challenges, climate change, much more severe Mm -hmm. weather systems? I mean, we look at it just from our perspective. You know, we normally, in a normal year, we would, you know, sort of spend a million, million and a half dollars in disaster relief. We've now, the year's not even out, and we've spent about six and a half, seven million in disaster relief. So one of the things I have my guys looking at is, all right, let's like take a step back and think about as we're doing this, mm-hmm. do we need to drive more of that, you know, are there things we can do in advance? Sure. Do we need to drive more of that investment into longer term rebuilding? Mm-hmm. And so it's, so there, I think, look, unfortunately, uh, these um, these tragedies happen and people lose their lives and communities get, get destroyed. I think the challenge for us is, do you, can you use this as an opportunity to really rebuild in a way that, that is, more sustainable. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like even in the, from what I've read from Houston, there just are houses that shouldn't have been built yes. where they were built, right? right? And 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 it's terrible that those houses were flooded, right. but everyone but someone, looked at a map and yes. said that house doesn't look like it should be there. But that that requires people that requires leaders to make tough political decisions, right? And right. and listen, this is what we see in Detroit. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Detroit has to shrink its size, yeah, right? And you have to have leaders that are willing to come in and said we, we cannot save every neighborhood mm-hmm. we are still we're trying to run a city you know with with seven million people that was built based on a tax base of two million people mm-hmm. so i'm seven seven hundred thousand people that was built on a tax base of two million people you know and you look at this mayor of detroit you know here is a white guy who gets elected on a write-in ballot in an 80 percent african-american city he's about to be re-elected overwhelmingly because he comes in and talks about, I'm going to fix the problems. I'm going to get the streetlights on. I'm going to make the tough yep. choices. And I think people want that leadership now. Yeah, I think that's right. And I can't imagine if I'm a political leader, and the mayor of Detroit is a perfect example of this, you can't have a person two miles down the road living in one house where you have to run electricity and you have to run your you know, if, uh, ambulance stuff. Yeah. And then there being six blocks, eight blocks, two yes. miles of nothing. Right. Um, so how do you get that person who did nothing wrong right. to, 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 go, to kind of come some to, other you place? You have to incentivize them yeah. to do it. And yeah. that's what they're doing. And you mm-hmm. have to, I mean, you have to go block by block, mm-hmm. house by house. Yep. Often, I mean, he, the mayor tells me the story, like he'll have, you know, you'll have someone who's, you know, grandma who's 75 years old and the last thing she wants to be doing is thinking about moving. He's got to go find the kids and <laughs> right. say, mom, you know, we, we're worried about you. We need to hear, we're going to find a nice house for you over here. Right. But you have to, it's, look, a lot of this is just execution, right? Right. And so, uh, yeah, you have to make those tough choices. All right, so I'm going to uh, wrap up the way I normally do here. So I ask this question to everybody. Um, D.C. is a town where you get coffee with folks when you're 
looking for advice, looking to pe- pick people's brains. If your schedule cleared up today or tomorrow or, you know, in the next couple of days, and you could have coffee with somebody or a couple people, uh, who would it be? And I'll give you a preference. Uh, we've gone with dead people here. We've got so, dead or alive. Yeah, it doesn't have to be dead or alive. Oh, my God. There's it so could many. be whoever you want, and they don't have to live in D.C. In the, you know, if there was a time machine. Sure. You know, there are people who have been on the planet who 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 have done things that nothing nothing can explain how they did it. So Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. John Adams, Winston Churchill, right? These are the people who you have to believe there's a there's a higher being, right? Because there's, <laughs> there's nothing else that can explain, sure, right? How they were in the position they were in at the time they were in, and 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 made such a difference in the history of the of the of the world. Uh, but then there's people like Lin, Man- Lin uh, Manuel Miranda. Sure. Like uh, you know, I've seen Hamilton. I read Ron Chernow's book on Hamilton. I would never have imagined. Hey, this could be a hip hop. <laughs> this is this is, this is a rap. And I'm a Broadway yeah. guy, right? Yeah. You know, and like the the kind of genius right. that takes. So right. um, the other one I was thinking was you know even like Queen Elizabeth, who's so maligned. But this is a woman who look what she's lived through. Sure, like you know, for for been the queen now for what sixty years. Mm-hmm. You know, the coolest uh, fact I heard about her is that you know she's never given an interview to a reporter ever. Really, people have picked up comments she said. She's given speeches, but she's never well, given you know an what? interview. Since maybe she do your podcast. Yeah, maybe she's not. It, you're not it. a reporter, and you can say the the palace can edit it. It's <laughs> <Yeah>, perfect. <laughs> you're setting the bar. You're setting the bar to Come from on. this. 14th of G podcast to the Queen of England. Perfect. Right, right. All right, Peter Shear, I really appreciate the time. Thanks for coming into 14th of G. That's great. Thank you. I want to thank Peter Shear for coming on the program. It was an interesting conversation. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe and tell a friend. If you're looking for me, you can find me on Twitter at CRWooters. My email is is wooters at mc-dc.com. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time at the intersection of business and policy, right here at 14th and G.